Hi, I'm Nathaniel Skye, the host of the Immersion Nation podcast. Here, the greatest minds in immersive entertainment create and conjure, muse and imagine the cultural revolution that is unfolding before us. That is immersive entertainment. Welcome. Hello, hello. This is the first episode of season two. And as such, we're going to be doing things a little differently. I am going to start each episode by explaining the relevant experience or experiences and giving some background on the guest. That way, you can sit back and enjoy the conversation with a little bit more context. This week, there are two relevant experiences. First, being Stash House, and the second being the Museum of Selfies. To start, Stash House is, in short, an escape room. But the narrative brilliance behind this experience makes it more than your run-of-the-mill escape room. When the world is not on lockdown, it can be found on West 3rd Street in Los Angeles, about a 10-minute drive from East Hollywood. The website describes it as follows. You arrive at a nondescript black door with a green light. You knock. The door slowly swings open and you are invited in. Welcome to Stash House. Your group has been invited to a seemingly normal Koreatown apartment owned by a local entrepreneur to discuss a business opportunity. Shortly after arriving, you discover the apartment belongs to Ray Jones, notorious Los Angeles drug kingpin, and that Ray has a test in store for you. Find all the drugs hidden in the space and flush them before the cops arrive or face the consequences. Stash House is a 90-minute escape experience that explores the dark underbelly of crime in Los Angeles. Does your crew have what it takes to pass the test? This is an experience created by Tommy Haunton, our guest, and his creative partner, Don DeLeon. I had tickets booked for this back before the world closed down, so unfortunately, I've yet to attend this experience. However, As is the case with all of the experiences we cover on the Immersion Nation podcast, we are chatting with Tommy today because word on the street is that it's a darn good show. The other experience, which we touch on only briefly during the interview, is again the Museum of Selfies. Now, if you're not familiar with the trend, there is a phenomenon called the Selfie Palace, also sometimes known to critics of this form of immersive experience as Selfie Factories. Selfie palaces are experiences with very visually appealing environments and often interactive art installations. This allows guests to experience a highly designed, typically surreal environment while getting the chance to use these environments for their own photos. The common criticism of the selfie palace is that they are just for the gram and the subsequent free marketing they garner from the guests posting on social media. But while the cash grab of a selfie palace is a real thing, there are many out there that are so much more than that. The Museum of Selfies, which lives at 6757 Hollywood Boulevard, is one of these places. This is because the Museum of Selfies is, in itself, a reflection on selfie culture. The LA Times explained in a 2017 article covering the opening of the experience that the co-creators wanted to explore the history of the selfie and why people feel the need to capture and reproduce images of themselves. Now that is an intriguing concept. One that, to me, seems quite philosophically indicative of one of the aforementioned co-creators, specifically our guest today, 
Tommy Haunton. So, who is this guy that creates such marvelous immersive experiences? Well, Tommy, to paraphrase his website, is an experience designer who combines storytelling and game design to create experiences people can play. Tommy has been working in the immersive space long enough to have played a key role in creating what the LA immersive entertainment community is today. He's worked as a creator and consultant with companies such as Disney, Google, Lionsgate, and Warner Brothers. He has also been involved in creating some titles you who are tuned into the immersive world may recognize, such as Arcana, All of Them Witches, and The Mortality Machine, again, to name just a few. As a side note, the founder of Wired Magazine, Kevin Kelly, has a podcast called Cool Tools. Tommy Haunton was the guest of episode 162, which is also a fantastic listen especially for those of you in the trenches of the escape room industry who maintain an ongoing love affair with every Game Master's favorite adhesive, E6000. Finally, Tommy is also a founding member of Leia, which is short for League of Experiential and Immersive Artists. Leia is a burgeoning but increasingly important group in the LA immersive artist community and a fantastic resource for immersive creators. So, that is all the context any immersive adventurer may need before venturing onwards into the interview portion. Stick around after the interview for another new segment, the Immersive Community Briefing, where we update you on what's happening out there in the world of immersive entertainment. And with that, we are on to the next. This week, the Immersion Nation podcast is brought to you by none other than Immersion Nation's Experience Directory a great resource to find immersive experiences for your adventuring enjoyment. This includes a multitude of remote and digital experiences to be enjoyed from the safety of your own home. Typically, immersive entertainment is almost exclusively an in-person medium. Thus, enjoying new immersive adventures often requires a plane ticket in addition to a ticket to the experience. But because in-person is a little problematic right now, Many of the most brilliant immersive creators are producing interactive work to be enjoyed via Zoom, phone, text, social media, or a combination thereof. So if you're in the mood for a little intrigue or excitement, go check out the Find Experiences for Quarantine page on our website, ImmersionNation.com. Tommy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Thank you for coming and taking the time to chat about this wild and um, increasingly wild world that we are working in <laughs> yeah. right now. So just to start off with, so if context, how did you find your way into experience design and into the immersive realm overall? I sort of stumbled into it. Uh, it was something that I had always wanted to be real since I was a child without realizing it ever would be. The, the biggest reveal, I think, came to me when I was a kid. I call this my origin story. Uh, when I was a kid, we lived across the street from a city park. And my sister and I, I was like five or something, we found a scavenger hunt underneath a bench in the park. And so we wandered around the park finding the other answers. And at one point, it was directing us to go somewhere that we knew where it was, but it was just too far for us to walk. So we went back home and did the next logical thing. Uh, which was designing one for our neighbors. And yes. there was something really magical, basically knocking on their door and then finding a note and then them going around their backyard. And I remember we hid the 
packaged cotton candy in a flower pot. And there was just something really exciting about watching them find it and then eat it, mainly because they weren't allowed to have candy. Um, and this idea that there is magic that can be hiding in the world. And you never know who it's for or what it's doing there, but you can just sort of follow this path. You know, we knew the scavenger hunt wasn't for us. We left everything there and we never knew how it ended and we never knew who did it. And to me, these questions were sort of this magical what if that punctuated a lot of the big moments of my life growing up, which were chances to create memories or experiences or tell stories through unconventional means. You know, I grew up loving video games and comics and theater. I loved all of it. I loved stories. But to me, the one that resonated the most were the ones that I was part of, that I was crafting, that I could make my friends part of. And it wasn't until many, many years later when I came to LA uh, trying to do film and TV that I discovered immersive theater and escape rooms as this sort of like language that I had been speaking. Um, so I had just come to LA to do film and TV and I was in this sort of conventional narrative world of like in the entertainment business. And I was not terribly pleased with how I fit into it. I was very frustrated by it. And then suddenly, you know, a few years after that, immersive theater and escape rooms are something I sort of stumbled onto. And I was like, oh my God, these are the things that are more my language. And what really blew my mind was that one, people were designing them, but two, people were paying for them. And the realization this was a business, this was a career path, blew my mind. And so from that moment, I made it my goal to be part of that community and figure out how I fit in. Uh, and so I'm over the moon that I'm able to make this my full-time job. And it's truly incredible how frequently I hear the sentiment of, hey, it's been this all along and it just finally found a place in the world. Um, how frequently mm -hmm. that sentiment is echoed by people within the immersive community, though everybody has their own unique path. And I love um, I love the dots being connected from your work in Stash House presently and the scavenger hunt moment when you were five. That just makes so much sense. And that that kind of discovery of magic is something that makes our entire industry so unique. Yeah, 100%. And there's something just, especially the idea that there's a lot of, I think part of me is going to always question and challenge authority. And in such a bureaucratic and established hierarchy and system in place that's entertainment, there isn't a lot of room for challenging notions for large-scale companies or for this sort of entertainment giant. With immersive interactive stuff, it is still kind of the Wild West where things are getting defined and experimentation can still happen. You can cross genres and stories and make discoveries. And I think that's part of what drew me to it was not being told what to do, but rather being able to experiment and play and find these other sort of kindred spirits who are also doing the same thing. It's incredibly gratifying to yeah, be part of such a great community. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. Um, we get to live in this moment where <laughs> before there are a series of hurdles and very stringent gatekeepers in place. Um, how do you think we find ourselves in a place where that doesn't become the tenor of this industry as well? How do we find ourselves in a place where immersive entertainment doesn't start to just look increasingly like traditional entertainment in that right? I think what's, I think that's a, that's a great question and a great problem to, to have to plan when 
an industry has reached a level of legitimacy that, you know, classic bureaucratic structures begin to be put into place. I think by the very nature of immersive entertainment, um, there is a throughput issue. And because of that, large-scale companies, and they're definitely trying to figure out how they fit in and invest in it. But the model for large-scale investment is really hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. And because of that, I think it's going to be a while before it is just wholesale taken over or you know, run over by you know, larger players who kind of can put up that gatekeeping. Uh, and by its nature, I, I think the indie film world is a good example, and the indie game world. Those are both two um, sectors that are thriving right now because accessibility. You can make a web series or a indie film with not a lot of experience. You getting equipment, editing, there's so many tools that are available at your disposal now. Uh, same with indie gaming. The ability to make art assets and to code is there are so many tools and tutorials that the ability to jump onto the scene and spread something around this community is there's a lot of accessibility now, which is great. And I think the same is true for immersive interactive, and I don't see that ever going away. I think the scrappy, weird stuff that is not, you know, dependent upon an investor or anything more than a person in a garage, you know, can pull off amazing things. And I think the industry is always going to need that. Just like the independent film world and the indie game world are supported by people doing weird stuff in their garages. And those people, by proving and trying stuff without, you know, um, any kind of gate or, you know, financier keeping them at bay, can try stuff that they learn from and then go on to actually do bigger projects. So look at the big directors now. You have, like, Christopher Nolan was an indie filmmaker. And I see that, you know, being really relevant for a immersive interactive creators. People that are doing weird stuff and have done weird experiments are working at giant companies. And even vice versa, where you can work on a giant project. I love the filmmaker Steven Soderbergh a lot. And one of the big reasons why is he has done giant studio films but then we'll go off and do really weird independent stuff. And then at the same time, he'll go do like assistant camera work for the Hunger Games because he's friends with the director. Who else, you know, who's won awards and does giant stuff is also willing to do weird independent stuff. And I think immersive interactive work allows for both of those things. You can do a one-person show and then go work on a giant theme park. And that is completely within an experience, you know, uh, level that... You know, obviously, theme park is funded by a giant company, but a one-person show you can totally do on your own. So that's part of why I think it works: is the nature of the audience and the fact that you people crave intimacy and weird scales of interaction and audience size allows for again. I think the removal of gatekeepers. Like you can't gatekeep if it's a matter of you getting a small theater or a non-traditional venue and you making something on your own. And then next week, going out and designing a theme park ride. Like, nothing's holding you back from that. And that's kind of what excites me. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting because our, um, immersive specifically, while being one of the most expensive mediums to create and work in, um, just again, to your point about the throughput, throughput problem <laughs> that um, we're still collectively trying to figure out how to solve, it also, at the same exact time, has one of the lowest barriers to entry of any other artistic medium. You don't, you don't need to even like buy an instrument. You don't need to get a piece of paper. Yes, you could do all of those things, but at the same time, in theory, all you need is the idea to create some kind of interaction. And so 
it's it's interesting to me to consider the idea of preventing gatekeepers, but at the same time understanding that there's never going to be a barrier to entry in the way that there has been in other industries um, right. to prevent uh, the creation of independent work um, and the creation of innovative work that t- tends to push an industry forward. Um, yeah, and I, I'm always excited to see new work come up and new creators put their spin on something because there's something about fresh voices and like you said that you can do so much with constraint and 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 make something really weird and fascinating when you have the sense that you you can't fail you know that's why i love you know uh immersive jams you know i've I've been to a couple escape room jams you know immersive theater jams where people have you know set requirements a set number of you know things they have to do and the ability to create with knowing that this thing is going to exist in some fashion and there's no way to fail. And I love those learnings because when people are able to try out stuff and do weird experiments and then realize, Oh, this works, this doesn't work. I don't know. It comes up with so many weird, interesting, fascinating things that again, I think that anyone can do that on their own without the need of a jam. They can just come up with the idea. How can I do a show or an experience with the fewest number of pieces or with all these constraints. And to me, I find constraints actually really freeing uh, to focus on the core of like, what am I trying to do and what are my tools? You know, if I have infinite tools, you know, suddenly I'm choice paralysis and it's a lot harder to pull off. But if I know I only have, you know, a hammer, a piece of paper and, you know, a, a, a kilt, like how am I going to be able to tell a story with these and me as a person, like, what can I do? And that to me, my head immediately begins rushing and trying to solve that problem figure out what can I do with this and really stretch the use of these objects, the use of the space, the use of language, the use of the participant. And like suddenly even with only a few tools, you have a ton of options. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really incredible. It's, uh, it's, I'm very excited to see where everything goes, what everything looks like in five, 10 years. Um, and honestly, if, uh, if the immersive community in LA are the people who are running the big companies on the other side of things. I, I think that that world wouldn't look too bad. Um, so moving from there, speaking of what everything's going to look like in five slash 10 years, we are at this inflection point. And I have to ask as someone who is on the ground in LA at the moment, how is the LA immersive community and how are you doing through quarantine and through COVID and through handling all these changes that we've had to make in the last few weeks here? It's definitely really surreal. I think um, it's easy to be in some sense of, I don't want to say denial, but a sense of not being able to wrap your head around the impact this is having locally and then globally because the numbers are just something it's hard to wrap your head around. These idea that millions of people are out of work, um, it's heartbreaking. And it's, it, it is scary on the bigger sense of, of wondering, are places that have storefronts you know, brick and mortar theaters, are they going to keep the lights on? Are they going to come back? And for the creators and the workers, I know so many people who have been affected, me included, by having events and gigs and things cancel or be postponed. And so, yeah, it is, it is scary. And doing, you know, as a, a private citizen and also a member of Leia, which is our guild for uh, experiential and immersive artists out here, trying to do what we can to fundraise and, and you know, advocate for people that have been affected financially by this just to make sure people can stay afloat has, has been a big focus of it. The other aspect is trying to be optimistic. You know, the, the thing that I always say is that 
you can't remove the fact that we are humans and we have not really changed much over the past several thousand years. We crave contact. We crave experiences with our fellow humans. The very DNA of what makes immersive work is we're humans and this is what we crave and what we want and what we desire. Ultimately, it makes us feel more alive. And there were a couple articles I even saw during this thing that were like, is this the nail in the coffin for the in-person experience? And it, it, it's completely backwards. If anything, people sitting in front of screens and being surrounded by people through these weird, you know, glassy surfaces that you can't interact with, we can call BS on it. We know it's not real. The same way that animals don't really react to animals on TV, like we don't react to humans the same way on a screen. We know who that is, but there's something about being in the same space. So, you know, I don't think it's the death knell for in-person experience. The only scary part is people are going to crave it, undoubtedly, to want to go back to do and support the space. The biggest question that comes from it, though, are people going to be afraid to be in close quarters? And will people have money to support the arts and these experiences? And I don't know the answer to either one. You know. Part of me is the optimistic one saying, yes, we'll be fine. It may only take a few months to get back up. But the, you know, doomsayer realist in me is like, it's probably going to take a lot longer, you know? So I don't see the industry ever going away. But in this, you know, era of sort of giant growth for this space, this is definitely a, a more than a bump of the road, but I think a, a sort of stalling point. I know it'll come back. I know it'll be fine. I know the community will survive through this. But I, I know it's going to be painful for a lot of people. So it's just trying to keep those things balanced. It really could go either way. I'd also want to think about the potential outcome optimistically and being like, people are going to crave it. And, you know, being now, at least for me, uh, quarantined for been three weeks already. Shoot. Um, yeah. How are you holding it? Is it? Is it weird to be quarantined like this? It, yeah, it's it's very strange. It's very strange. And I um I don't know what date specifically you guys out in California went on lockdown, but I was actually in Orlando um for a work conference. And um being in Orlando, uh around two thousand people from all different parts of the world, I came back and that was <laughs> that was ex- when uh my self-isolation started. Um and just just this uh, short amount of time into it, I'm more and more feeling like the the potential of people very much being excited about in person interaction is uh, is more and more accurate and more and more possible, I should say, mm-hmm. um, and less of just a <laughs> sheerly optimistic light of thinking around it because it's a uh, it's truly strange. I am not gonna lie; like just at the end of like week one, I was already going a little bit stir crazy and. I think that potentially just the fact that people are spending more time interacting um, in the digital space, you know, calling friends and family members, um, speaking to people who they haven't checked in with for maybe a few years, I think will put us in a place where we're potentially interacting more um, than we have as a culture because there are less uh, there are less things demanding time and attention. And as such, that potentially, because we can tell the difference, could translate into, hey, so we just spent this time um, interacting in all these different ways in a digital medium, and we're ready for <laughs> for something that is uh, a lot more 
that makes a lot more sense to our physiology that makes a lot more sense right. uh, um to to what to what are just what humans understand as connection on that level um that's my line of thinking around it but you are right it could be either way and yeah i mean the the part of me that you know i i hold two angles i think you know humanity has run its course and looking at like you know politics or how people can be cruel and awful to each other you know it's like eh, maybe the giant meteor strike you know will take us out maybe we've had our run but the other part is i've seen the you know amazing depths of kindness that people have for one another and the amazing connections that people can form and so the optimist in me is like people and human nature while having a lot of you know devils does have better angels that i hope will come through and i, I think you're right people connecting especially checking in with one another and just changing the context of asking, how are you? And it no longer being this form of like neutral social greeting, but actually hearing a response and getting this moment to be real with people. I don't know. I'm curious. I, I hope it, you know, transcends this sort of distant and loose connection that social media gives us and makes people realize or connect a little bit deeper with people around them. That's my hope. If there's anything that comes out of this that can be beneficial is that people appreciate connections with people, regardless of whether it's through entertainment or just from being around one another and supporting one another. My hope is that it does at least that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, here's to Immersive being there, uh, ready to help provide when when that time comes, hopefully. Yes, cheers um, to that. Yeah. So before um, we jump down that ra rabbit hole, um, before we uh digress down that side path any further as much as i really really would love to um i want to make sure that for anybody out there who is not familiar with all of your work um that you can have the chance to kind of take us through um from uh, an explanation of stash house to an explanation of museum of selfies to an explanation of your work with leia um and just to just to give people a more specific sense for how how your path starting finding a scavenger hunt under the bench in a park and like discovering the sense of wonder has evolved into what your daily life looks like now or <laughs> did up until recently yeah. um and yeah what that translation through the course of of years has become so maybe starting with stash house what what is stash house well, and actually before Stash House, um, basically, I when I saw this world, I really wanted to just jump into it. I didn't know how I would fit. And I knew I had some proficiency for it only because I'd done it. You know, I designed a bunch of games and experiences for people growing up, for friends, family. And when I hit the space, I was like, I want to do something. And wasn't sure what. And I reached out to a bunch of people who I had no business reaching out to. And this is sort of part of my who I am. I have a real chip on my shoulder for just, I like to defy authority and I like to figure out, like, can I beat a system? If system is in place to keep me out, how do I figure out how to get it? And when I came to LA initially, I reached out to every entertainment executive I possibly could by figuring out their email address. And it worked a lot. I got a bunch of coffees, but I was a dog chasing a car. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I didn't know what to actually do with these connections. It was just more of a novelty. You know, I not even caught the car, but I was a dog sitting in the driver's seat and didn't know how to turn on the car. 
So <laughs> I've wasted a lot of these connections just by making them and letting them fizzle out, not knowing what to do with them. And to me, I hate networking. I hate going through this shallow, like business politic, like, Hey, Hey, you know, slick, you know, I want to help you out. Like, let me help. I hate that to me. I can't fake enthusiasm. I can't fake respect for people I don't like. So it was really about this idea of like, I love this world. How can I dive into it? And I was like, well, what if I just reach out to people that do work I like? And so the very first escape rooms and experiences and immersive stuff, I emailed punch drunk after seeing sleep no more. I emailed, you know, the first escape rooms that I did. And those people, I think, probably thought I was crazy because the emails were a little bit more unhinged and just more like passionate and excited about like, oh, how can I fit into this world? So one of the early uh, escape room franchise guys uh, responded and said like, sure, let's talk. So he gave uh, me a huge sort of boost confidence-wise of like, we talked about what I had done. He's like, yeah, you have a language for this and I would love to figure out a way to work together. And that was incredible. Like that to me was a validation of my ability to work in the space. So he was going to bring me in to design and take over his LA location and sort of work on this space uh, and design for him. And that's when I'm like, I don't really want to do this alone. And I had been working in LA with a writing partner for years doing um, traditional TV film stuff. And I approached Don, my writing partner, and said, hey, look at this space. What do you think? And he completely got it. He saw exactly what I saw. And so I, I reached out to the, the guy and said, hey, I want to bring in this guy as my business partner and creative partner. And he's like, cool. So we ended up parting ways with him. But that is how we stuck, you know, Don and I stuck together in the space, going from writing partners to business partners. Uh, and this guy is still a giant in the escape room and sort of experiential space. He was incredibly kind and supportive. You know, our parting of ways is more about business rather than creative. And he saw escape rooms as a short-term investment. You know, he was in and out in a very quick way. And he got a lot of people their first starts. But for us, we saw it in a sort of a different model. So he saw the difference and supported us completely. But from there, we had to completely change our designs, which was we were playing with house money. You know, this guy was going to invest and he had a very traditional business model. Whereas Don and I suddenly losing his money, it was a matter of, okay, if we're funding this ourselves, what can we do that is different, wholly true to what we want to do storytelling wise and spatially designing? And it was really a question of creating something that felt authentic to LA and issued all of the, you know, bullshit repeatability of a jail, a bank. We wanted to make this something that we could build a character around, build narrative around, and try immersive, interactive, just weird experiments with it within the core business. So, yeah, Stash House was built as this crazy idea of, well, what if we just got an apartment and built something inside of an apartment? And we pretty quickly realized that was a terrible idea. But the ethos of the feeling of walking into an apartment and creating that space and making it feel illicit and dark and weird with different tonal twists. It's like, okay, well, what if we just found a space and built an apartment inside of it and made it feel like a real dingy apartment? And that was sort of the craft of Stash House, uh, coming at it from that angle. And we had never built something like this before. It was a lot of theories on my end about what might work. And we had you know, a very tight budget. And it was us calling it favors and, and figuring stuff out and breaking stuff and trying again. But it was just this giant experiment 
Uh, and as we were building it, we actually did an immersive prequel that told the backstory of the uh, antagonist protagonist of the story. And we did a really cool experiment. There is a gallery out here in LA called Think Tank Gallery. Uh, Jacob, the owner, is a good friend. And he knew we were building this and said, hey, would you want to create something special for the show we're doing that is about LA? And we ended up creating three chapters that were super intimate, that told the backstory where you got to play a part in this guy's life. And again, it was validating certain options for us in terms of background, storytelling, interaction design. And it was so exhilarating to get that out there because that was the first thing I had independently produced myself. At this point, I was doing a lot of consulting for immersive, uh, usually for free, just trying to get my feet wet and meet people and prove I was good at this. But this street baptism is what we called it was the prequel. That was my first, is this going to work? And it was terrifying. Uh, But thankfully people responded. And from there we launched Dash House and again, had no idea if it would work or not. We did tons of testing and changes and updates just to make sure that, you know, I was listening to the data of our audience having fun. Do people enjoy it? Uh, and it is definitely an escape room. Like it, it is, it is, it is our version of a sort of weird escape room. And we want to keep adjusting and changing for future installments. But again, this was proving ideas and validating stuff that I had been thinking about for a long time. So it was really gratifying that the community and that people responded to it, uh, especially considering how few resources we had at our disposal. So yeah, that's the story of how Stasha started uh, and sort of the weird jump into that space. That That is fantastic. Um, I love the, the way that that evolved um, for you and... Then, of course, on the other side now, Stash House has been running for how many years? Uh, we opened in uh, January of 2018. Uh, we should have opened much earlier. We had the space for a long time. And so the weird sort of thing that transitioned before we opened and after, uh, I was still at Disney and Dawn was still at Paramount doing our day jobs. And we were still writing and ended up having a film get made, which was kind of a funny story, um, from Lionsgate. Uh during this time. So it went from us not having sort of any sort of, you know, side things going on and just doing day job and opening stash house at night and weekends to both of us losing our jobs within a period of six months. And then from there getting a film made. And so it was a very surreal shift. And the thing for me, the biggest question was, you know, I didn't want to go back to a quote unquote day job. You know, I didn't know if the escaper would actually sustain us. So I couldn't rely on that as like a full source of income. So I had to figure out, well, what am I going to do? And I had, at that point, done some consulting and design for friends. We had Stash House coming up. We had done the prequel. Uh, actually, no, we had another prequel yet. That was after. Uh, that was a few months after I lost my job. But in that sense, I had stuff going, but it wasn't a job. It was a hobby. It was something. And so to me, I was like, well, what am I going to do? And I decided not to go back to applying for work. I decided to try to make this my full-time thing. And I really, I hadn't come out to LA to sit behind the desk or be stuck unhappy. I was really unhappy. Um, it was a corporate, it was at Disney, but it felt like it could have been in a Dilbert cartoon, you know, in a cubicle. It was very bureaucratic, very political. And I was very, very unhappy. And I didn't want to go back to that. I couldn't do it. And so I had told myself I didn't come to LA to be miserable. And the really scary thing that really pushed me into this job is I had been at Disney for a long time. 
And only a few weeks after, when I drove by the building I'd worked in, I looked up and it felt really weird because I didn't really feel anything. I looked at it and I tried to think back in my head of like how many times I'd spent crossing this bridge into the main lot or crawling that staircase. And it had to have been in not just hundreds, but thousands. And I was shocked because it's like, it felt like I'd been there for six months and that scared the shit out of me because I realized how I had let time pass and had done nothing of value. It was like I had been walking through a montage, uh, you know, on a sitcom or something and, and just had, you know, time flash by really quickly, but it didn't feel like it to me. And that's when I'm like, I can't, I can never let that happen again. I didn't come out here to waste my life and to be unhappy. I came out here to do crazy stuff and I was going to try to make it work at that point. And so that was the big drive was, okay, we have stashes coming up. What else can I do to make this industry my own and work in it? And there were no full-time jobs that I had seen outside of firms, independent contractors or consultants. I, I, I didn't, you know, I knew people owned rooms, but I wanted more. And I had to push myself really hard to, we got Stash House open, you know, six months later, we got, um, you know, the prequel done prior. And I just started taking on more and more work, just helping consult and jump in. And the question was, how long would I have to do that before it would become a full-time thing? And the answer is about two years. So, you know, really about a year and a half after opening Stash House, January 2018, we opened. But a year and a half later, I was at a point where I was had a ton of work and I was looking back and going, okay, cool. I guess this is my job now. Wow. Coming from the place of spending your nights creating spaces of emotional resonance for other people and then having that moment looking and realizing that as, as tuned to spatial um, locational awareness as we are as human beings and realizing that this place had none of that, had none of the elements of the thing that you were creating um, and so driven to create, that's, that's a piece of realization that I imagine had probably informed your work to some degree. Do you feel like that has shown up in the creation of experiences and experiential spaces um, from that point? Yeah, 100%. I think the two things that have really pushed a lot of my work, one is just not even from the design standpoint, but just advocacy. You know, I am sitting here with you now because I have worked with so many brilliant people. Don is an incredible business and creative partner, but I do a lot of consulting on my own. You know, Stash House is just a small part of that. But the thing that I look at is almost every single project I take on, I like working with people. I love collaborating. And so I see all of the people that have hired me and have collaborated with me as these brilliant partners. And I'm insanely lucky to be surrounded by such amazing people. At the same time, I also see people asking questions about how do I get started or how can I work on this? And to me, I will always take every email and phone call and do what I can to help people because I am deeply, deeply aware of how one email response can be a break or even just a confidence boost to help. So I've been trying to, you know, give my advice and and help support anyone I can trying to break into the space because I am sitting here because other people want to work with me and take, you know, you know, me along for the ride. So passing that along is just part of my DNA. I can't not do it. Um, on the other end, the the tonality, like obviously I work on all genres, I work on all scales. The biggest thing for me is I want people to walk out of an experience, you know, whether it's scaring them or whether it's entertaining them, delighting them. 
you know, making them laugh, making them cry, whatever it is, I want them to walk out feeling smart or connected or like they matter. Because to me, I felt so unimportant, uninspired, and, and sort of kept down in this, in this job and life I had before that I understand that even one experience that makes you walk out, giving you some sense of, you know, connection to yourself, to others, to the world, it, making you feel something and just empowering you is very valuable. And it's something, that, again, the reason that I felt like God calling to the desert and that immersive interactive was my canteen. You know, it's, you know, the, the mirage you're climbing towards and suddenly it's real. You think it's just, you know, an oasis that's not real, but it is. And so being able to provide even just a couple drops of that, of that nourishment of you are smart, you do matter, you can make an impact on the world and each other. You know, I always try to make sure that people walk out with something like that, you know, where they're, they're buzzing, they're excited, you know, and it's not about the money. Like I'm lucky that I can make a career out of this, but it's really about, again, trying to impact the world on some level and impact people on some level. So yeah, I, I for sure think, that I would not have those two ideals in place as highly as I do if I had not come from that experience before. And I will say that it is a rare thing um, in many ways to find someone who just in uh, our initial email exchange, you, you carry, um, you are able to communicate your energy, your excitement, um, and just kind of the very vibrant uh, demeanor, I suppose, through email. And it's hard for me to picture um, picture you as uh, not you, as um, <laughs> as the person who you're describing who is dealing with um, this period before you found your, you have found yourself in the position that you are now. Um, what for those people out there listening who are maybe interested in exploring creation in the immersive space, but are maybe in a similar place to where you had been before you got your first break in that right? Um, could you kind of explain just how you were looking at things, how you were feeling about things, or if there was a specific instance that stands out um, that may have been particularly difficult um, when you were in the process of, you know, reaching out to people and not really knowing what to do with that. And before you got your break, like for anybody out there who, you know, is looking at you as a leader in the immersive community now. Um, so they have context for everybody's origin. Like what is there something that stands out from that time period where you were not able to live inside of the place inside of the uh, creative, creative, uh, zone, <laughs> what have you? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the biggest thing is just this. This the scariest part was. I wish I had learned about the amount of time I had spent at this company because I knew I, I wasn't like I was brainwashed or in some sort of like trance, like I or in a coma. Like I knew I was there, but I think it's human beings are really good at surviving, you know, and it, we can survive crazy, crazy stuff. Human beings are good at that. The, the challenge is we are also really good at letting time pass very quickly. And it is the, these platitudes that people hear, they're all true about, you know, time is brief and, you know, 
sticking through stuff that makes you unhappy, like it's going to go by fast. Yeah, yeah, everyone knows that, but it's the difference of knowing it versus experiencing it. And for me, I let a lot of time pass before I did anything about it. I was really unhappy. And I think being aware that I was unhappy and acknowledging that was the first step I never took. Because the fear came in as I got entrenched in a job. I came out to tell stories. I came out to write. And Don and I wrote, for sure. We got some low-level amount of success. We had a good agent and a good manager for a while. Like, but nothing really came of it. And on that end, the advice that why I, we failed, I think, on that end, and it would maybe not even failure, but not achieving the success of the writing side, is I did not know how to network. To me, I thought that entertainment and creative work would speak for itself. And it doesn't. It comes with baggage. It comes with, you know, creative executives and people not wanting to get fired because they keep recommending scripts that their boss doesn't like. And it's hard when you work in a creative field. And again, all you care about is, your, is you know, there's a thing with mammals um, and, and any kind of predator, actually. Uh, no animal's proud. When you're going on the hunt, you are not going to pick the biggest gazelle that's going to mess you up because of pride. No, you're going to pick the weakest because a meal is a meal. On top of that, going after the biggest, most powerful thing is dangerous because if you get injured and they screw with your jaw and you can't eat, you're dead. People are the same way. When you're in a job and you're a gatekeeper, yeah, you're a gatekeeper, but guess what? You can be high-minded and go to your boss and say, look, this new writer is great. You've got to give them a chance. They're not going to do that. They're going to go and find a script or a thing that is able to be justified very easily. And in case the boss hates it, the boss can say, why'd you bring this to me? And you can say, this guy was on the blacklist. He's got a lot of traction. He just sold a script. You're going to justify everything you do to protect yourself. It's just the nature of being entrenched in the entertainment world. And yes, there are people that have ideals and people that do take risks. But on the overall, the reason why entertainment is the way it is, it's the path of least resistance. And I did not want to wrap my head around the fact that I had to go to drinks and meet people and socialize because that can change the context of my words. Like it didn't make sense to me at first. Now it does. But I refuse to be part of that world, which is people hire the familiar, the things they can justify. So that's why I failed is the social aspect. I didn't understand it. I am awful socially. Like I am very socially awkward. And I've gotten better at coming to terms with my social awkwardness. I have embraced it. I now know who I am. The joke I say is that I make a really good second or third impression because the pressure's off me to have to even worry about making a good first impression. And like no one else in who's a, a good friend, you know, I made a terrible first impression and maybe even a bad second one. But the realization is that if people can realize I'm genuine and that I'm not here to bullshit you when I offer to help, I genuinely mean it. Like it takes some time for people to realize I was genuine. And okay, I can't fight that. So how else do I make this work? It just, for me, was coming to terms with how I fit in with the social dynamic of the gatekeepers of entertainment and then taking those lessons and putting them into immersive, which was, I actually like these people. I don't have to fake it. So I can sit there and ask questions and get to know and want to support these people organically and genuinely. And that was just a giant wake up call, was being aware of my social awareness and how that works just in general with humankind. Additionally, that also changed and made me more aware of how I designed the work of how people move through experiences and how they're socially aware during that time. So that's one. And the other aspect is just making a plan. I didn't make a plan. 
I was stuck at my job and then I got fired for cause. Like I was fired. It wasn't like I intentionally got fired, but it was definitely, I was so unhappy that I started making more mistakes and stopped correcting them. And that's why I got fired. Getting fired is not the way to jump to a new career. You should plan. And I should have planned. I didn't. So if I had gone back in time, I would have identified that I was unhappy. The biggest thing is change is scary. And that holds people back. Fear is scary. Change is scary. But the biggest thing I would say is that, yeah, it is. Deal with it. Find a way to make change and plan long-term and figure it out. Make small steps. Don't do something crazy because I had zero guarantees of being pushed off my cliff of getting fired. I had to go into debt, you know, opening Stash House and doing my consulting work. For two years, I went into debt, living off savings and credit card debt, building this up as an investment going, okay, let's hope this pays off. For me, it did. And I'm very lucky it did, but there were no guarantees. A safer bet is always better. So the last thing I would say is make something. You know, part of your safe bet is going into this world and showing what you can do with whatever resources you have. And those may be nothing. And that's where the constraints we talked about and what makes this industry so exciting is that you can make something in your garage for a couple hundred bucks and prove to people what you can do. If you can't build something, learn how. There are so many accessible tools online to teach you almost anything under the sun. And do it. Prove to people you're good because people are not going to hire you or take you seriously or invest in you unless you prove it. So if you don't want to make a full-scale show, then make something that's a simple version of it. Put it online. Talk people through it. What really makes people see the difference between someone that wants to do it but they aren't sure of and someone that can't do it is when you actually make something and you talk about it. It's not about the quality of the work. It's about the intention behind it. If people can see the intent behind your work and you can talk about why you designed something the way it was, things you learned as you did make it, that is you talking with an air of authority. And that will separate you from other people that aren't doing that. And that is what gets people hired or brought on for consulting projects or brought into roundtables or charrettes or anything you want to bring, you know, talk about in this space that sustains creators. That is absolutely the way to go about it, is proving that you can do it, learning yourself, and then talking about it with the community. I think that very much in the vein of introverts oftentimes make the best extroverts. Um, <laughs> people yeah. uh, like yourself and like myself um, who maybe <laughs> maybe refuse to play the networking game or maybe just there's something in in someone that can't for whatever reason um, engage in kind of that disingenuous thing. I wonder if in certain ways people the worst uh, the worst networkers um, make the best networkers the people who don't sit there and try and, you know, play a business card game, um, but who are only willing to and only really able to have um, really genuine interactions with people um, in the course of a mutual interest in or care for something. Um, and all of that, I think, is really incredible advice for anyone out there in almost any creative discipline. Oh yeah, and the other thing is reach like reach out, reach out to people. That's the other thing too, is that this community of people are some of the most supportive and kind and open people I have ever met and had the joy of working with. And 
the most exciting thing is that these people are fans of the work. It is so exciting to be connecting with people who like what the other people do. Like there's something really special about that. And it's so easy to get lost in the weeds talking shop and, and discussing and debating and geeking out of her stuff with people that you're like, Oh my God, I loved your show. I can't wait to talk to you about it. And then them saying, Oh my God, I love yours. Like there's something so special. So don't be afraid to reach out because people care and they will get coffee with you and they will talk to you about stuff. And, or, or even now, like they will get a digital phone call or a hangout with you. I think it's just, don't be afraid to reach out and start planting the seeds of being part of this community because people, I think, again, there are no gatekeepers here. To me, the way I see it is that I am a fan of this space and a, you know, almost a protector of this, of this medium of interactive immersive work. And I will never do anything as a professional or as a fan that would negatively affect it. And I think almost every other creator I know is the same is in the same boat where they, you know, will create and do stuff, but never at the detriment of the community and only to help support and buoy it. it it's this idea. And again, another hackneyed thing of a rising tide lifts all boats. That is no more true than the escape room, the immersive interactive community. When people become turned on and evangelized by this form, you know, they just get excited to explore more. And for me, I want people to keep making work because I want to go experience it as, as a fan of it. You know, and I, I see myself being a creator or a business person, almost secondary or tertiary to my being part of this community. It, it really is incredible that uh, the entire community, insofar as I've seen, like I've yet to see this challenged at all, has this tenor. They, I mean, to a degree, it certainly makes sense because the, uh, the entire impetus of this community is to create connection and to have meaningful interactions and meaningful experiences. Um, so from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, there are so few other things like that out there. There are so few other subcultures that are like that out there that um, there is a really unique thing happening in the world right now, um, being very much spearheaded by the L.A. community. Um, and to an increasing degree, um, New York, of course, and it looks different in many rights everywhere. But tell me a little bit about Leia um, as something that is, you know, has been spinning up and getting, you know, coming together over the last uh, year or so, Am I, if I'm correct about that. Well, it's a couple of years. It's, it's been okay. slow, but it's been, again, a, a passion project that, you know, all of us involved are excited to try to get off the ground and Navigating legal frameworks and, and you know bylaws is is a little bit dry, but we want to get this right. But Leia is the League of Experiential and Immersive Artists. It is uh, the goal to advocate uh, for artists and the community at large with advocacy, education, outreach, and uh, lobbying. So the angle, I'm one of the founding members, but I'm also uh, trying to lead the permit fight. LA has a lot of great things going for it. We have, in my mind, all the ingredients uh, needed for making this a robust, you know, innovative, giant community, except for the support of the city of L.A. Um, and it's not that they're actively fighting it, but the challenge is right now it is almost impossible to do short-term work. So a pop-up, an immersive show in a non-traditional space, getting that up off the ground in a legal way is very challenging. And either cost prohibitive 
or just outright illegal. And so we have surrounding communities, you know, Burbank and Glendale and smaller cities that have their own set of rules. But it is there is no guarantee that you're able to operate. And it is a difficult legal landscape to navigate and has been something we've been trying to change and get done throughout the past couple of years. It has been a very challenging fight with a lot of, you know, allies we've built along the way and a lot of moments of maybe this is going to work and then some heartbreaking defeats. But we're, we're still fighting and we've built up a large coalition of people that are affected in the same boat. And it's just a matter of getting the city uh, to acknowledge that immersive interactive work is not reflected in the current language and is really hard to get off the ground now. The one hope of this whole uh, pandemic crisis right now is that you know, arts in general are going to need a lot of support. And the hope is that with the desire for people to get back into experiencing things after being cooped up inside and with the city wanting to help stimulate growth, the real hope is that we can use this as leverage to get the permit, you know, change that we've been looking for for years off the ground. Because nothing is more prohibitive to artists and creators than going through red tape. And now more than ever, when this ends, we want to get people back to work creating shows, putting things up to help support the community and to get audiences back, you know, in feeling things again. The hardest part is if you can't do it legally, it's going to really stymie things. So that's sort of the thing we're framing now uh, from the permit side. But again, it's at large trying to advocate for this work, whether it's doing outreach and reaching out to communities, explaining what this is and how, you know, it can revitalize communities or help establish, you know, different voices in different spaces. But at even a larger sense that, you know, Leia can serve as a model to open up chapters across the country. So we have a lot of legwork left, but, you know, again, there are incredible people. I'm very, very lucky to be, you know, a small part of, of such amazing people on the founding committee. Um, so, yeah, if people are interested in reading about Leia, uh, it's Leia.design. Uh, there could be a link in the show notes, but it's, it's a great organization. I'm very happy to be part of it and super lucky to be asked to join. And I also think on the note of the legislative side, um, I think the legislature, especially in L.A., and I would assume in many ways this holds true for New York, though I think that they have it a little bit easier out there um, with certain laws they have for temporary uh, creation in temporary spaces. Um, but the the legislation is just built for not this. It's built for a very, very different industry. And the the battle of trying to just be have have what immersive and experiential is understood from a legislative standpoint, literally just understood, like, what is this thing? Like, how do I we mean, make rules for this? <laughs> like, you, you would laugh at the understanding that most people have in the city government side is that immersive interactive stuff is either a sex dungeon or a underground rave <laughs> or like a dusty cabaret. Like, they see these as these you know, dangerous things that are, you know, going to kill people or like somehow perverse or it's just, they're very close-minded and I get it. Like their prerogative is to save and protect people and not to, you know, again, take a risk and be like, well, yeah, you got a good vibe yet, kid. I'm going to let you have your crazy sex rave dungeon party with candles everywhere. You know, they're not going to do that. They're not going to risk getting sued. Uh, you know, the ghost ship fire, which happened uh, with a sort of a underground artist collective in Oakland, a number of years ago is really what spurred this on. 
you know, before the ghost ship, it was easy to get temporary event permitting. But the fear was that if LA had had a ghost ship fire that had a temporary permit, they would be liable. And there was a giant sort of panic from the side of like, how are we going to issue things in a careful way? And their way of being careful was just not issuing things anymore at all. And once we called them on it, they uh, had to figure out the legal language for why they stopped it. And they said it was because, oh, oh, we're going back to enforcing the, uh, the original intent of this law, which is for outdoor events and church parking lots, basically. So you can still do outdoor events. It's just changing the use for a temporary event in a parking lot. But anything indoors is now verboten. So it's, we've been trying to change that. There are um, measures on the floor that people have looked at, us included, that are trying to codify what an indoor event looks like, but it's, it's way too draconian and it prohibits too many spaces for this to be valuable. So um, we're still fighting and it's a matter of, again, we want this to be safe. We want to artists to create work that protect the artists and the creator and the contributors and the guests. We want everyone to be safe. But at the same time, you know, the city would rather have it, no events at all, because that's going to be the safest for them. So it's trying to find a common ground, which is how can we encourage people to produce events safely, you know, and, and remove some specious arguments they're making about, well, you know, we're going to have people doing illegal things anyway. Well, yeah, you're always going to have people illegally downloading music. But if you make it where it's easy to download and the price is reasonable, you're going to reduce that piracy as much as possible. This is the same boat. If you make the permitting process as clear as possible, as fair as possible, and as cost-effective as possible for both sides, you're going to have more people doing it. And that's actually going to help the industry in a larger way because when people have a show that's doing it DIY style, which is just underground, not permitted, um, they're still doing it safely, we hope. They're still doing it in a way that's going to protect people, but they can't really advertise. They can't really push it. They can't run the risk of running it for six months and getting shut down. So the chance for artists that sell out quickly and never let new people discover their work can finally get the chance to run longer and to sort of build this bigger momentum. Because um, sold-out shows are great. I love it when artists sell out shows. But when you have only a two-week run and 200 tickets and you sell out, that's going to the diehards in the community that know how to find you. Once the word gets out that people are like, oh, I want to see the show. Oh, it's sold out. That's not helping the community at all. So it's just it, it, it dovetails outside from just making it easier to do work. It also makes it where the community of, of supporters can actually grow. Is there anything exciting in this space? Anybody else's shows or anything um, specifically? Actually, I'm curious about in this moment, any remote shows that are either going on now or um, upcoming that you're really excited about? Yeah, there's one thing that I, I really love that this is a great chance to talk about is there's a podcast called Escape This Podcast. Um, it's, it's by a couple, uh, Danny and Bill, who are in Australia. They're amazing creators. They've been doing this for a long time. But what's really interesting is that they uh, do audio-based sort of tabletop escape rooms. Uh, and Danny and Bill design almost all of them. Uh, they're so fun. And what's really cool is I've seen a ton of people taking, and what's really interesting, they, with each episode, it's sort of a, a game. Um, but there's always like wacky, weird stuff you can do in audio-based one that's more role-playing that you can't do in a real life version. So they're very immersive in the sense that there are potentially hundreds of actors and all sorts of interesting stuff you can do. 
with each episode, they release the actual game so you can run it. And they've always done this. But I've seen so many people take advantage of this now, including me and my friends, because, you know, we'll play games online. But there's something about being able to operate this, you know, over a, a Zoom or a Hangouts that makes it so easy. Uh, so, yeah, Escape This Podcast. I was a guest a few weeks ago. Um, it's, it's really fun, but I, I love the idea of being able to run it for friends. And so I've seen so many people just running it, their games now. Uh, and that really blew my mind. Um, and I just, I, I, I have yet to dig into stuff because I've actually been busy doing work. I have a couple projects finishing up. But in April, I finally have downtime. I'm going to dig into whatever's remote. So I'm not sure what else is out there, but I'm excited to dig in because I know the people are being inventive and crazy. I know there are escape rooms and games and ARGs running right now that I can't wait to dig into. Um, so I'm sure in April, I'll be doing nothing but this. But if anyone has any recommendations as well, like I would love to know. So from there, Tommy, where can people find you and your work um, if they want to either say hi or see what's going on um, with the stash house and the work that you're doing in LA, where can they find you? Well, uh, my website is just my name uh, and it's, it's, I'm redoing it right now. It currently just links to the stash house page, but I'm redoing it. It's been a long work in progress because I have had no time, but guess what? I have time now. So uh, I'll be finishing my new website. There will be an interesting sort of interaction and game on it that will be hopefully functional by the time I launch. So uh, yeah, my website, uh, I don't use social media because I think it's toxic and evil, uh, but I am on Twitter for some reason because I guess I have to be. Um, but yeah, people can just find me uh, on the website. Uh, I love talking to people and and just talking shop and, and offering any advice or help that I can. So if people ever have questions or just want to, you know, even call bullshit on me and say like, I don't agree with what you said. Like I'm happy to talk. It's, it's a lot of fun to even just debate and talk about stuff. And I learn a ton of stuff. Like I am open-minded and always open to changing my mind if people make a given thing argument. So I love when people challenge my assumptions and I learn from it. Wonderful. All right. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time to chat about this wide and wild world of immersive that we're adventuring through. Yeah, thank you for one having me, but also thank you for doing this. I, I am a huge fan of your work, and I think it's just a matter of the ability to expose people to creators and to the space. Just I think makes it a better, you know, space. It, it, it's something that I'm a huge fan of, just advocacy and outreach. And I think you do a great job on that. So thank you for doing it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, and for everybody out there listening. Everything that we talked about over the course of this conversation will, of course, be in the show notes if you want to go explore and check out the things that we've discussed at immersionnation.com slash podcast. And finally, before we go, I'd like to introduce the new final segment of the podcast, Your Immersive Community Briefing, where we update you on new shows, answer listener questions, and talk about what's happening out there in the world of immersive entertainment. This will be evolving as we move through season two, but for now, it will just live here as a couple minutes after the interview segment. This week, while immersive is still happening largely via digital mediums, some businesses around the country are starting to reopen. One note of interest here is the reopening of restaurants with limited capacity and often with emphasis on outdoor and patio seating. What this means for the immersive community as, arguably, part of the hospitality industry is yet to be seen, 
but it does make me wonder if the first in-person immersive experiences we'll be seeing will be outdoor oriented. This of course could be something of a sustainable model for warmer states, but could be a limiting factor for immersive work in colder regions once we find ourselves on the other side of the summer. In other news, if you haven't heard, the 2020 Immersive Industry Report has been released. This takes a look at the immersive entertainment world over the last year from a bird's eye view. We'll be digging into the report a bit in this segment next week, but for now, we'll link that in the show notes for anyone who wants to take a look. Finally, we just had a fresh round of updates to the experience directory over on the website to include shows such as Chaos Theory Online by Ekant Koan Games and Caveat, and the already sold out Red Flags by Capital W. Some of the tickets for these experiences by better known producers are getting snapped up quickly, so remember to keep an eye on their social media feeds if there's a particular show you'd like to see. And that is all for now, you lovely immersive explorers. Have a wonderful week, stay safe, stay healthy, stay strong, and until next time, thank you for joining us on this adventure.